Well, praise the Lord. It's great to be with you again. And it's good to hear how the Lord is just with you. Amen? Amen. How many of you believe that? That the, the living God who, who flung the universes into space actually knows about this church. Isn't that amazing? And he's very concerned about its prosperity. It isn't up to miles. It's Jesus. Amen? That, makes, that gives you real security. <laughs> Not that he's not a great guy, but, I'm, but you, know, you know what I mean. I mean, it, it takes the weight off him, it takes the weight off everybody else. We think, well, Jesus is with us in this thing, you know. And uh, when this building was wonderfully given, it was, it, was, it was orchestrated in heaven. Isn't that right? And he walks among the candlesticks. He knows what's going on here. He knows what he likes. He knows what he doesn't like. And uh, he knows where he's going. And there's an eternal destiny for this church in the midst of his great cosmic purpose. Amen? Amen. I want to turn to the, the book of Zechariah, please. And in this first session, I want to prepare the ground for, you know, the main meeting. So those that come for that one will just have to get the tape. It'll, And then Eileen's going to come tonight and bring the glory down so it's going to be quite a day amen now the book of Zechariah let me just quickly introduce you to the book of Zechariah Zechariah and Haggai were two prophets that prophesied um, and they are part of a group of six books which are called particularly the books of restoration you have Ezra Nehemiah and uh, what's the third book no, no, the, the, the history books. Es Esther, that's right. Those three books. And, that's it. and then you've got three prophetic books, which are Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. Now, these are books which are actually written concerning the actual fact of the historic restoration of God's people, the people of Israel. But if you read all the prophetic books, they're all anticipating it. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Daniel, all these books are simply concerned with a very, very small section of history, just a period of about 150 years, where God let his people go into captivity for a period of 70 years to chasten them, but never to destroy them. Amen? It was for the purpose that they might be humbled, learn the lesson, and come back to even greater power and authority. And that their latter end was going to be more glorious than the former. So even the book of Lamentations has a, has a message of hope about it. God says, I'm going to let the devil come and do certain things, but it's, for, it's not for your destruction, it's for your chastening. That, that, that by your humbled repentance, there's going to be a recovery of everything. And you're going to end up much more glorious than you were before it began. Now that's obviously happened historically to the people of God, but it was still an allegory of the church. Okay? So the books of restoration become incredibly important as we see that time of restoration now beginning across the face of the earth. Amazing things are happening in the Church of Jesus Christ worldwide. I mean, we could, we could stand here and just tell you story after story how God is hitting nation after nation with his power. Something amazing is going on on the face of the earth. But when we look at Western society, where we have, if you like, the, the, that was where God nurtured Christianity, we have to admit that we have gone through a terrible period of backsliding. 
Amen? And we think, well, is God finished with us? Is it only Africa and India and the Far East that's going to see the glory? Are we just going to be living in a church that's worn out, dead and finished? And is our only hope the return of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Scripture screams at us, absolutely not. It says in the book of Haggai, for example, he says, I promise you, in those last days, I will shake all nations, all nations. And we're told what the purpose of that shaking is. It's in order that those nations might see the desire, seek the desire of all nations. In other words, it's, it's, not a, it's not a judgmental shaking, it's a redemptive shaking. It's to make them turn from their idols and return again to the living God, that he might pour out his blessing upon them. Amen? And the books of Zechariah and Haggai are written after they have returned from their captivity, according to what Jeremiah prophesied. Right on time, they, they were released. God used secular agencies like the king of Persia, Media, Cyrus. God has everyone in his hand. Amen? It, you know, it really doesn't matter in one way whether the President of the United States is a Christian or whether he isn't, whether he loves God or whether he doesn't. God can use him anyway. He can turn them. And if you have a, a, a born-again, spirit-filled president and the, the demonic powers that rule over Washington, D.C. are not overthrown, he would be powerless to do anything. Can you hear me? It's the powers that we're dealing with rather than the persons. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So that's where the war is. And there was a secular king, Cyrus, and God turned his heart to release the finances and to make all provision for God's word to be fulfilled upon the earth. And just imagine all those vast financial resources in the United States, instead of being given to lesbians and homosexuals and being given to all kinds of perverts, if it was all released for the kingdom of God. Just think what that would mean for the kingdom in the United States. And I tell you, beloved, these days are happening. It says in the context of that, in Haggai, all the gold and silver is mine. <laughs> it says in, uh, in Isaiah that God in those days will turn to God's people the wealth of all the nations. So financial resources are not going to be a problem. I mean, these are such incredibly exciting days. I want you to begin to catch the heartbeat of God. And Wharton, Texas, is, has got to do its part in God's glorious hall. The world may be too big for us, but certainly our region isn't too big for us. We say, right, well, we're going to do our part here, and if everybody does their part wherever God's placed them, that, the power of that corporate hall will absolutely turn this nation round and make its latter history more glorious than its former history. Everything that God put into the heart of the Founding Fathers has to be fulfilled because it was God that said it. It wasn't dreams that they dreamed up, it was things that God said to them. Do you believe that? Yes. You'd better. <laughs> Amen? So here they are, they've come to the place where they've begun to see restoration. They've begun to put in the foundation. And then after four years of putting in the foundation, they were surprised, dismayed, and finally discouraged and overwhelmed by the consistent opposition of the enemy. How many of you know the devil don't give up easily? And so they came from that enthusiasm of rebuilding to a period of passivity. And for 14 years they just sort of walked around an incompleted building. They walked around a, a foundation which was never went beyond foundation level. And that which was an enthusiastic beginning became a disappointed middle. 
And then they started to seek God for themselves. They started to seek to build their own comfortable homes rather than being taken up with the house of the Lord. That was the complaint that God had. He said, now you've got diverted. You see, and, and this can easily happen with what God's doing in this nation. The very movings of God's Spirit across this nation, we can end up seeking those blessings for ourselves. And I feel that's the danger that we're in. So God wants to heal our hurts. He wants to thrill us with his presence. He wants us to come into new intimacy. He wants to do so many tremendous things for us, but it's all got purpose. The purpose is that his, his, the destiny for this nation might be fulfilled. And if, if we end up sort of introverting to, to wanting God only for us, God, you know, bless me, bless my house, and you know, let's have this blessing, let's have nice meetings in here, but the rest of Wharton, the rest of Houston that's so demon-possessed, well, that's too big for us, and you know, it isn't the Lord's time, it's not the Lord's time. That's what they were saying. And it was in that context that these two prophets came, the prophet Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, and Haggai prophesied four times over a period of three and a half months. And what God released through those prophecies, it changed the spirit of everything. The circumstances didn't change, but they changed. Can you hear me? They didn't suddenly see all the demonic powers, they didn't suddenly see all the opposition disappear, but their spirit so changed that it ceased to be a problem anymore. They stopped postponing the day when they felt they were ready to go do something about it. That day, which was some vague time in history, or in the future, now became an imminent now. And the Spirit of God touched Zerubbabel, the leader, because the leader was affected along with everybody else. It touched the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, because he'd, he'd gone off and he was not ready to fulfill his role. The priesthood wasn't in place. And thirdly, all the people had got diverted into seeking to, for God to, to bless them. To, they were now, their energy was on building for themselves a more comfortable home. You can see that in literal material terms, you can see that in spiritual terms. So much of the energy of the Christian church in America is spent upon blessing the church in America. 97% of the resources of the church in America are spent on the church in America. We've become introverted. Amen? Amen. Now that's the background. And I want to, in this uh, first session, just to, just to prepare us for the second session when I'm going to talk more extensively about the Melchizedek priesthood, which is God's answer to the whole thing. But the background is this, that again and again in Scripture you will find that when the people of God are called by God with a real vision God, uh, from God to go do something, they start off well, but immediately when you start to do the will of God, how many of you know that you automatically generate demonic opposition? And so you find them again and again hitting a roadblock. When it came to going and possessing the promised land. God said to them, he said, I can't take this generation into their possession because they have no heart for war. Exodus 13, 17, he said, I can't take them in the direct route by way of the Philistines because they have no heart for war. And if they, if they found themselves in a war situation, they would go back to Egypt. So he had to have a whole generation, he took them into the wilderness, first of all for a period of time, then he brought them up to Kadesh Barnea and gave them a first shot, I think it was what after about four years, he said, right, now you go in and possess them. He said, no, we can't, the giants are too big, the cities are too strong, fortified. So that whole generation had to go back and die in the wilderness until God could produce a generation that were ready for war.
And then under Joshua, they then went in to possess the land. But it wasn't a pushover. God says, the whole land's yours, go get it. But what he didn't tell them at first was that they were going to have to fight for every inch of it. Every piece of ground you put your foot on, I've given it to you. But the trouble was there was already a giant on that piece saying, I defy you. And they had to learn how to conquer the giants and how to overcome the fortified cities before it became, it became actually theirs. How many of you know that's the way it is with God? You'll find that in the days of, mid, of, of Gideon, that they were out planting seed and, and cultivating, you know, preparing the fields for harvest, but they never ever reaped a harvest because the Midianites always came in and stopped them actually reaping the harvest. So there was plenty of activity of seed sowing, but there was no reaping. You see, that's the position with much of our evangelist activity. We're not actually reaping a harvest. There's a lot of seed sowing, there's a lot of activity, to, but we never reap, not significantly. Only Gideon got a tiny little handful of harvest. Everybody else never saw any harvest. You know, it's easy as a church to think you're successful because a few people are getting saved. Because most churches aren't seeing anybody saved. Amen? And there was Gideon. He had a little bit of harvest which he was putting behind the wine press. He was putting it under the blood. He was putting under the blood because his main concern was even though I've got a harvest, I have this terrible fear that the devil's going to come and steal it from me. And until what God did was to take Gideon and raise up a militant army and destroy the Midianites and then afterwards they could reap and sow and reap and sow without any difficulty. Hello. Yes, amen. Can you hear me? Yes. And so there's this, this need to bring forth a warring people so that their destiny is fulfilled so that they actually possess their possessions so they actually reap a harvest because until you deal with the enemy you are always on hold waiting for a better day and, and it's not so much that there's ever going to be a better day the, or let me rephrase that the better day comes by destroying your enemies I mean, whenever God's people rose up and destroyed their enemies, then they then were then free to come in and possess their possessions. Alright? Is that okay? So, Zechariah chapter 1. I just want to pick up something here. For in there, and, and we're just going to look at it quickly. God says, uh, let's turn to verse, um, verse uh, 14. So, the angel who spoke with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry, and they helped, but with evil intent. So, first of all, be quite sure of God's heart in the matter. He has got a zeal about this thing. Jesus said in the days of his earthly ministry, he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts consumes me. In Isaiah 9, it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's a great study to study the zeal of God. God isn't passively saying, well, maybe a better day will come. <laughs> There's something passionate about God and we need to get into his passion. He has a passion for his word to be fulfilled. He has a passion for his kingdom to come. And he has a passion to save. Amen? It isn't a part-time hobby with God. It's an all-consuming passion. He doesn't think about it occasionally on the side. And say, well, in between building my new house and furthering my career and getting my kids on in their sporting careers and, and all these other things I have to do, on the side, once in a while, I must think about getting the world saved. God doesn't think that way. It's an all-consuming passion. 
Amen? Amen? So this is his heart. I'm exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. And he can't stand, God cannot stand lukewarm Christians. That's what it says. Jesus said, I wish you were hot or cold, but please don't be half-hearted. Either be burningly hot for me, or go and be an honest sinner. But for goodness sake, don't put on the mask of Christianity and be a half-hearted believer, because I can't stand that. I, in fact, he said, I want to spit it out of my mouth. Makes me sick, really. That's what it literally says. And so this is the God that we serve. Amen? Amen. I'm zealous with great zeal. I'm returning to Jerusalem with mercy. Verse 16, my house will be built in it and a surveyor's line shall be stretched over. So in other words, I have every intention of building my house. He's talking about spiritual Jerusalem. He's talking about the house of God, which we are. We're the living stones of that house. And he's furthermore concerned it's built properly. So he has a measuring line. He's checking it all the time to make sure it's being built according to his pattern, not to ours. And apostolic ministry has a particular responsibility here. Amen? Amen? Zerubbabel is a type and shadow of the apostolic ministry. I've not time to develop that, but that's very clear from these scriptures. And so at the time of this rebuilding, at the time when God now starts to complete the building, it says that, that Zerubbabel is going to have a measuring line in his hand. And it says that before Zerubbabel, the mountains will become a plain. So there's a particular authority, and there's a particular building skill about apostolic ministry which we need. Is that okay? God laid the foundation of the church by what instrument? By the hands of the apostles. Amen? It says the hands that laid the foundation are also going to be the hands that finish it. So at the time of the completion of all things, at the time when God brings things to a conclusion, when he finishes his glorious church, there's going to be a restoration of the apostolic ministry because he's going to use Zerubbabel to do it. Is that okay? Does that make sense to you? Right, so in that context here, in verse 1, he says in verse 17, My cities again shall spread out through prosperity, and the Lord will again. So he's going to start building churches which are like spiritual cities that have the power, the government, and the authority to rule. Is that alright? Then in verse 18, he, he, the prophet says, I opened my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said, What are these? And he said, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen and said, What are these? And he said, These are the horns that have scattered Judah so that no one can lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them and to cast the horns out of the nations. And we're told, in, in, if you've got it in your margin, but it's, it, that the horns are, the, the Hebrew word means kingdoms or powers. There are four strong kingdoms or powers which have caused God's people to be scattered, torn apart, disempowered, and as a result they're not able to lift up their head and they've just become a fragmented, powerless people in the face of these four great horns. Amen? And if you think about particularly this century of the history of the United States, particularly this century, then I want you to see very, very clearly how there's been a strategy by the demonic powers to make the Church of Jesus Christ a scattered, powerless people that are a laughingstock rather than seen as the answer to the nation's needs. Amen? 
And I want to very quickly tell you what, because this word, this four comes again and again. You get the four locusts in the prophecy of Joel, which come and strip the nation. And we shall see in a moment, you get the four kings in Genesis 14, which are, which are the kings that have to be slaughtered before the, before the lots of our nation can be rescued. And these represent a, a strategy of demonic darkness which has got four kings heading it up and there are four great dominions or kingdoms which are under those four great kings and there are legions and legions of, of run-of-the-mill demons which are the army of invading locusts which have stripped the land of all its true values. Now that's happened to us over this century. And I want to just very quickly mention what you, these four things are. Ah, there's been four systematic assaults upon the very foundations of this nation. Number one was an assault upon the way we think. It was first of all, primarily, a war of the mind, and it still is. Now what was peculiar to Judo-Christian thinking, and this is, this is recognized, if you ever study philosophy, you will find that they teach this sort of stuff in philosophy classes. And they talk about this, this thesis, antithesis thinking, which is peculiar to Judo-Christian culture. And basically the idea is this, that in this thesis-antithesis thinking, that the philosophy is that there is an absolute right. Now that's only peculiar to the way Christians and Jews think because they both have served the true and living God. That there is an absolute right. And because there is an absolute right, that which is not the absolute right, by definition, must be wrong. So in other words, there is this real sense of right and wrong. Only in Judo-Christian culture will people say, I can't do that, it's wrong. There is no such thinking in Hinduism, there is no such thinking in Buddhism or Confucianism or any other ism because they are not able to think like God. Hello! Amen. And if you read your Bible, you'll find the Bible is full of black and white statements. It's full of, this is right, therefore everything that's not right must be wrong. There aren't two rights, there's only one right. If Jesus is the Saviour, there can't be any other one. If he's the truth, everything else is a lie. There's no truth in Islam. There's no truth in Hinduism. There's no truth in secular humanism. It is a patent lie. And until you grasp that and allow yourself to think that way, you can't begin to think like God. And if you go through the Bible, you'll find that the Bible's full of positive thesis-antithesis statements. For example, you know, there's no other name given under heaven by which we might be saved. Amen? Amen. So there isn't any good or truth in the other isms, the other religions, there's only truth in Jesus. If you believe in him, you can't believe in anything else. Amen? Now that's not acceptable. And at the turn of the century, our universities, our places of education began to change from thesis-antithesis thinking and to absolute rights and absolute wrongs to a new form of thinking which is called synthetic thinking. And in synthetic thinking, the, the basic premise of this is that you take the good in everything. If people sincerely believe something, there must be some good in it. So you don't dismiss it, that's just arrogant and proud. You have to find the good in it, and the whole of truth is in the component parts of the different bits of truth that are found in everything. So you end up in a mishmash of not really believing anything, being open to every opinion, and never really coming to any definite conclusions. You end up being a person that has no conviction about anything and so you can be moulded and reshaped according to the circumstances. In other words, you end up with what's called situation ethics. 
Okay? And those, that sort of person can be persuaded by the latest argument. They don't say, I don't, I, I, that's wrong. They say, well, I, I'm, I'm, you must be open to consider it. This is the idea. And so when our kids go to school, and when our kids go up through the system, they are being trained to think in a way that is basically anti-God. God said, your thoughts aren't my thoughts. And your ways aren't my ways. And, and so this thesis, antithesis thinking, has been abandoned by Western culture, and they've embraced synthetic thinking, with the result that we have no absolutes anymore. Now, th this has the effect of producing people that have got no deep convictions that they're prepared to live for, or if necessary, to die for. You don't stand for the truth, because there isn't an absolute of truth. You remember how Pilate said, what is truth? It's a sort of flexible, adjustable thing, depending on what seems right at the time. So it produces this sort of cotton wool atmosphere in which nothing is definite. Kids have got no roots, there's nothing to live for, there's nothing to die for, and as a result you never produce any real leadership. Because politicians will adjust what they say in order to please the people. Because if you've got that kind of thinking, you can say, well I don't care, live or die, I'm going to stand for the truth. Those sort of leaders have disappeared, have you noticed that? Probably the last one was Mrs. Thatcher. <laughs> right or wrong, she stood for what she believed in. Amen? But we've lost, I mean, those great leaders have vanished because that way of thinking is no longer fashionable. Education educates it out of us. Now that produced a weakness in America which made it vulnerable to the next attack. The next attack was upon this, you see, God wants us to be simple thinkers. Amen? And I know that when I got saved, a miracle took place in my mind and God delivered me from my synthetic thinking background and made me a childlike thinker. I didn't stop thinking, but I started to think on the absolutes. Well, if God said it, that's it. The rest of it is not negotiable. That's the truth. And I'm going to live and die by the truth. Amen? And I became a black and white thinker. I became a thesis-antithesis thinker. And, and I hope that you are. Because once you get to that way of thinking, now you start to become strong. So the next attack was upon the word. So we, first of all, they attacked a simple way of thinking. That there are absolutes, and there are truths which are non-negotiable, which can't, don't change, cannot change, never will change. And then the next attack was upon the word, upon the scriptures. Well, once you start to question, you can start to question everything, including the trustworthiness of scripture. So before long, God had people rethinking whether the Bible was true. And then, gradually, he could get them to rethink whether the truths of the Bible were true. Things like the morality of our nation. Things like... Well, everything. So, and, and then, whether there was only one God, whether there was only one way, whether we were right to reject Hinduism wholesale, whether we were right to reject in Islam, isn't there good in everything? And before long, we have all kinds of weird and peculiar new sects rising up in the United States. It's been the major source of sects which have gone all over the world. Mormonism, uh, Christian scientists, to mention but a few. Most of them have their source in the United States. So they've gone out and polluted the world, beloved. And the money which should have been used for the kingdom has been used to, to promote these things and cause confusion all over the world in many, many mission situations. The moment Nepal became open to the gospel, the Jehovah Witnesses were there immediately. That's the tragedy of the thing. And we, beloved, we've got to cut these things off at source. Amen? 
And so before long, then of course the ancient religions weren't so bad after all. So we start to rediscover our historic roots and there's a great revival of the ancient um, you know, wisdom of the, of the original Indians and now we've gone into Eastern mystic, you know, Rishi so-and-so comes over with all his philosophies and, and there's all this garbage being dumped upon this nation. So every kind of, then of course it's not long before we're in, we're in open Satanism and open occultism and open spiritism and, and there's more witchcraft probably in the United States in the 20th century than at any other time in its history. There's open, active witches' covens, open, active seeking, there's open, active human sacrifice right now going on and all over this nation. Things are being offered to demons which we thought would only take place in darkest Africa. See, once you've shaken the roots then it opens the tide for everything to flow in. Can you see that? So that's, that's the second. The third one then was an attack upon our morality. Upon our understanding of, the, of pure, simple, morality with one man being given to one woman to life in a covenant relationship for their every home to have a father he has the headship of the home all these foundational things have all been undermined and any kind of mishmash that you think is meaningful to you any woman with any woman or any man with any man or any way you want to do it it's fine just whatever's meaningful to you that's okay see that's the result this is where the thing flows so we've, we've lost our foundations in terms of family and morality and integrity in all these areas is that okay that's the third locust that's the third stronghold that's the third king this is orchestrated by strong demonic powers they said well, how are we going to break America how are we going to take away its foundational roots how are we going to how are we going to stop it fulfilling its God-given purpose in the earth and this is the strategy that's being used and of course the fourth one was to move away from a simple lifestyle and become absolutely greedy instead of seeking prosperity for the kingdom we've sought it for ourselves there's, there's absolute anything anything is fair to make a buck you see once you've lost your absolutes you can make a buck any old how and what's more you can live in the dichotomy of being a faithful church member and being as crooked as a crooks corkscrew in business you can be as ruthless you know, in business and yet you can do a few little you know you know um, philanthropical things in your church and you can live in this dichotomy and many many people live in this way amen the, the greed the, the, the passion that seeks money is, is a, there's a great great God has been risen up in this nation that many many worship and it's the worship of financial success no, no there's nothing wrong with that for the purposes of the kingdom but if it's for you it's corrupt from the very beginning can you see that? And so those four locusts that came, those four armies actually, which came across, they stripped the nation of its values. Those four great kingdoms which, which they were establishing, and then there's four great kings ruling over this thing. Now that's what we're at war with. That's the battle, okay? And as these four kings came in and primarily attacked the people of God, discredited them, tore them to pieces, wrecked the whole thing, smashed it to smithereens until we've got a scattered, broken, wounded, discredited church that, that doesn't, it's not able to lift up its head because we've been assaulted at the thought level, we've been assaulted at the biblical truth level, we've been assaulted at the morality and family level and now we've been assaulted at the finance and, and uh, simplicity of life level until, you know, there's just the smashed ruins of the whole thing. Now it's into this situation that God says he's got an answer. The answer, as we've, we've already 
scene, I'm really jumping to Zechariah 4, is the restoration of apostolic ministry. But he says, what I've got in hand, I've got four craftsmen. And of course, these craftsmen are the fivefold ministries. See, if you go through the scriptures, you, sometimes it looks like four, sometimes it looks like five, and the answer is both. See, there are four skills, but there are five types of person that move in these four skills. If you're going to construct a great building, if you're going to construct a new city centre, you need four building skills. You need the guys that can put up the structure. We call them masons. The, I mean, I'm talking about stone buildings that are built to last. You've got the stonemasons who put up the structure, you've got the carpenters, you've got the electricians, and you've got the, you've got the plumbers, you've got these guys between them can build anything. But they need people to oversee the building work. So what happens is that if a guy is skilled in one of these building skills, but in addition to that he can read plans, he's got ability to lead men, he's got the ability to direct the work of others, he's taken off the job and he becomes a supervisor, a site supervisor. Is that okay? Now the site supervisor is the apostle. But he has to have the building skills. If he's a good plumber, if he's a good mason, if he's a good electrician and a good carpenter, he's the ideal guy to be in charge of the site because all these skilled workmen can relate to him, he can relate to them and he can have hundreds of them working and he can oversee and direct the whole thing. He can read the plans and he can oversee them. So he's got to have management skills, he's got to have leadership skills and he's got to have the ability to read the plan. And, and he's got to have the skills in himself in order to interact sympathetically with the guys that are doing the building work. Now that's basically the picture of the fivefold ministries. The apostle comes out of at least one of these building skills and ideally should be able to move in all the building skills. If, if you think of the Lord Jesus, what the Lord, was the Lord Jesus a prophet? Of course he was the great prophet. In fact it says that all prophecy has its source in Jesus. It says that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. Was Jesus a great teacher? Was he a great pastor? And was he a great evangelist? And is he not the apostle? Can you see how all the skills were in him? Have you got that? What about the apostle Paul? Was he prophetic? Sure was. What about his teaching ability? What about his pastoral heart? What about his evangelistic zeal? Can you see all the skills were in him? You see, he's the, the, the most spoken of apostle in scripture apart from the Lord Jesus. Can you see that the ideal apostle moves in all these skills but he's got the, the ability to draw you know, evangelists and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to himself to put them to work to build something. Is that, is that okay? So God says I've got, a, I've got an answer to these four kings. I've got an answer to these four great horns. I've got an answer to these legions of devouring workers. I'm going to raise up building skills that are going to put the people of God to work in such a way they're going to build something which destroys them. And when these four great principalities see the rising up of the craftsmen, it says that they are terrified. And rightly so, because Jesus in the last year of his ministry, he concentrated on producing the first batch of apostles. When he saw the great harvest in Matthew chapter 9 and, and cried out with compassion for they had no shepherd, he saw them as beat up, broken, destroyed people. The first thing he did was to go and appoint the apostles. Is that not what he did? You read in Matthew 10, he went and got the apostles. He said, he said, if I can produce the apostolic ministry which can build these strong spiritual cities, then we can destroy the whole work of darkness and we can, we can cast them out of our nation. Oh, hallelujah. 
Does that make sense? So we need to pray for these. Pray for these. Well, God, will you raise up across the United States powerful apostolic ministries after the Lamb? I don't talk about great, I don't mean false apostles strutting around in their self-importance and taking big offerings and you know, glittering with diamonds. I'm, not ta- I'm talking about these men who are servants like the Apostle Paul who are builders, who, who are able to direct the building skills so that we so build the church that it's so powerful and it's so strong and it's so militant and it's so, so mighty in power that it, that it drives these things out of town. It says that these building skills, according to Zechariah 1, it says that they terrify. That's what it says. Verse 21. Verse 21. But these hordes have come to scatter Judah so that no one can lift up his head but the craftsmen are coming to terrify them and to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah. You see there came a time when secular humanism said we are going to separate church from state in that ludicrous way that's now our present experience. You know, that no one's allowed to mention the name of Jesus. And if kids a, a year or two ago were to pray or mention the name of Jesus, they were handcuffed and taken off to jail like criminals. This is what's been happening in our nation. And it ought to make us absolutely mad, beloved. Now that's demonic principalities and powers that have tried to so, so silence and crush and... and, and gag and tie the church of Jesus Christ that it's not free to say a single word and that has to be intolerable to us and you can see already things are beginning to break I mean we just read that the very lady who was the behind the row Wade she's now just been converted and now has become an anti-abortionist isn't that wonderful you see God's at work here beloved but listen to me these are the first beginnings but if we don't know how to war we shall hit a roadblock and we'll be stuck don't think the devil's going to sit and say, oh, what a shame, we've lost America, we, we better move out of here. No, 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 they'll fight. And so we've got to have the kind of people that can, that can persist in the warfare. We're seeing the first blows of success. Now's the time to intensify and increase the militancy. We're seeing these waves of refreshing come from the Spirit, and it's all to equip us and sustain us in the war as I will show you in the next session afterwards. I'll show you what this Melchizedek priesthood is. But I want you to see the nature of the battle. Alright? Is that okay? Now come with me to um, Genesis chapter 14. I've got five minutes. Wow, I just looked at my watch. Genesis 14. We'll just do this and we can stop. Okay? Is Is this exciting you? So I want you to see that we're in a great purpose. Genesis 14 and we read in Genesis 14 about the four kings I'm not going to read it all, there's not time This mentioned in verse 1 and then we read in verse 2 that five kings come against the four kings and they are defeated now what's been happening in America since the great Pentecostal revivals at the beginning of this century and then through the 40s and on you know with the great healing ministries we have been an incredibly blessed nation God has poured out wave after wave upon us but so many of them have dried up and failed to achieve their objective that's what we have to see and you see, what we've been waiting for is for the five kings. What, what, what do I mean? We're looking for men to rise up, with, or women, with great gift and great ability. You think of, you know, Catherine Coleman and, and uh, what was the name who started the Four Square Church? Um, yes, Amy Semple. For, and, and you think of uh, 
Mary Woodward Etta, I mean incredible ministries. No other nation has had such visitations. And of course the great revivals in the Sousa Street, we had the Latter-day movement that broke forth in Canada, went down the west coast. I tell you, we are an incredibly blessed nation. As if God again and again is seeking to break through. But you see, this is the mistake we've been making. We've been waiting for these, see what I see is we've been waiting for what I call King Ministries. You know, we've had Dr. Billy Graham, who's about the only one that's, that's survived years of ministry without messing up one way or the other. I mean, you've got uh, uh, Branham, William Branham, you've got A.A. Allen, you've got all these incredible powerful ministries which ended up in, in sin, in deception, or in, on, uh, in alcoholism, and some of them God had to kill them off literally, so they didn't spoil themselves and destroy his name. Now that's the tragedy. You look at over the history of this century and you see so many wrecked ministries. And the reason was because we were looking for king ministries. We were looking for some, some great man to come and, and fight. See, why did the people of God want a king? We want him to go fight our battles. That's what they said. We want him to go. We'll, we'll send our taxes to him. We'll tithe, if you like, to his ministry. But we want him to go fight our battles. And then we worship them as if they were some semi-deity. And when people come, oh, people, someone once came to me and said, "Are you the Alan Vincent?" <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Yeah." And they said, "I feel absolutely strange talking to the Alan Vincent." I said, "Don't be so stupid." <laughs> <laughs> But you know, when people worship and worship and worship and run around, we're going to, we know, just want to touch his coat. I tell you, it, they so make a king out of the man with the gift that in the end, it's not surprising that he gets deceived into thinking he's someone. He won't even come out of his hotel unless you've got an air-conditioned Mercedes waiting for him. He expects the whole, you know, bridal suite and, 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 and people will give it to him until it becomes an expectation. And we see that happen again and again. So we've made an idol out of these men and in the end they thought they were something. We put them on a pedestal and in the end they got so used to the pedestal that they thought they were kings and it wasn't long before something began to work into their ministry. A deception came and they fell. You see, all these five kings fell into their own slime pits. That's what it says. What a picture that is. Amen. And if you look at the history of all these ministries, you can see how we've raised up kings. They went to war against these principalities and powers. And instead of bringing us the, us the victory, we're prepared to give them our money. We're prepared to pray, you know, sometimes pray for them. But we basically left them alone to fight the battle for us. And they ended up with the kings, the five kings being defeated, and the four kings made even stronger in their rule and control of the region. Can you hear me? But then there rose up another man called Abraham, who went against those same four kings. And all he had was 318 people born in his house. He went to war with a covenant community. Hello. And the covenant community slaughtered the four kings and he rescued Lot see many of you see many of us have got relatives that have been captured by one of these four things their minds have been polluted by higher education their their uh, simplicity of faith has been polluted by embracing all sorts of other isms and we've got we've got lots in our own families who've been dragged off into captivity by one of these four kings we've got 
relatives who are so obsessed with making money that they've lost their former Christian roots. We've got relatives who've been so perverted in their sex life that they've become homosexuals or they're living in an unmarried state with a, you know, this, this, I mean, we've got, we've got the lots, amen? And the way to, to get our lots back is for us to go as a covenant community, to form a covenant community, to recognize that we are the very seed of Abraham. We're born in his house. Amen. We're, we're of his seed. Is that alright? Can you see where I'm jumping to now? And it's that covenant community, it's that seed of Abraham community that can go against the four kings and slaughter them. And the moment that militancy, see, it was only sitting there saying, oh, isn't it terrible? I mean, you know, my, my kid's gone off into one of these communes and, you know, or my kid's gone off into this ism or that ism or he's just gone off into, into making money or he's gone off, he's, he's rejected his foundations and many of us ache with the tragedy of this thing, isn't it? And we're going to get them all back. Amen. But we have to come to militancy. We have to come to war. Now, it was at this point and can you see how these four kings are the, are the rulers of this, these four great kingdoms and are the controllers of these four great armies of devouring locusts which have, which, have, which have eaten up our land. If we slaughter the kings, the kingdoms disappear. And the, 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 the armies of well-organized demons are now scattered in disarray. If you take the head off Goliath, then the whole Philistine army is defeated. Amen. Now we've been having a little success at killing a few Philistines. But the time is coming when we're going to have to start to tackle the big boys. And we've got to do it in the right way. Amen. And I tell you, God is tooling us up right now to go to war. It was at this point, I was just thinking that in a little town called Bethlehem, in a little building was a stable, something was born that brought salvation to the world. Amen? Or someone, someone was born. It was someone and it was also something because that's where the kingdom began. Amen? So I was just thinking, wouldn't it be just like God in a little town like Wharton, in a little building like this, to, to bring something to birth that could save a nation and touch a world. Is that too hard for the Lord? Amen? I think that was the Spirit speaking to me and uh, I just thought I wanted to share that. Who knows where it will go? Well, I want to continue straight on from where I was in the Bible study. I, um, and obviously I want you to get, to get the tape because it, it'll, it'll tack on to the front okay, but it, It'll show you where, where we're coming from and where we're going. I'm not going not to recap. We're just going to go straight into the Word. I want you to turn to Zechariah, please. And we saw that the prophet Zechariah and Haggai were prophesying to, an, to a, a nation that had returned out of captivity to build and then had got stuck. They had been stuck for 14 years waiting for the favorable time of the Lord, waiting for God, if you like, to begin a new initiative which was going to indicate to them that the time of the Lord had come. They kept saying, it's not time yet, it's not time yet. And actually, the truth was that God was waiting for them. Amen? And without their circumstances changing, without 
the enemy getting lost, less hostile than he was before, once their spirit changed, then what they've been waiting for for 14 years to happen, in the power of that new spirit, they completed in four years. They built the temple in four years once their spirit changed. They've been sitting around for 14 years waiting for some initiative from heaven to indicate the time had come. Hello. And so we could spend a long time in study of Haggai and Zechariah to see how absolutely apposite it is, because that's what's happening right here in the United States. And of course, that's what's happening and must be seen to be happening here. And we saw this morning how we have to recover what the enemy has destroyed over particularly most of this century. And my question is, can God do in five years what it do took the devil 95 years to undo? And my answer is, amen, he can. Amen. By the year 2000, we could be back where we were before the beginning of this century. In fact, the latter house will be more glorious than the former. Amen. And I believe that's God's agenda. I believe these five years, at the close of this century, the close of this millennium, and possibly... Who knows exactly how long before the Lord Jesus returns? These are crucial years. But God promises through the prophet Joel that he would, through that spirit-filled army, he would recover everything that the locusts have eaten. Amen? Isn't that an incredible promise? And it doesn't take God as long to recover what it took the devil to destroy. Amen. I can see a glorious United States where everything was in the heart of the founding fathers. I can see the public school system restored. I can see integrity come back into the medical profession. I can become, I can see lawyers who are concerned with justice and not with making money. I can see politicians who would rather resign than tell a lie. I can see, I mean, just, I mean, get hold of this. <laughs> can you imagine an America like that? where they are so gripped by absolutes of truth that they would rather die than violate God-given principles which are in their heart. Can we believe God for this? Yes, yes we can. Amen? Amen? So that's where we're going. And we looked uh, in the first session at the chapter 1 of Zechariah and, and chapter 2. I want to just jump into chapter 4 for a moment. I'm not going to expound it, but just to indicate where we're going. It's in this chapter that we get these tremendous words that we're all familiar with, and it's even on one of your posters, one of your uh, wonderful banners here. Verse 6, So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Who is it to? You see, it has to be to a man. God gets hold of a man, then round the man he gathers a covenant community of committed people. That's the formula again and again by which God destroys the demonic strongholds, and allows his word to be established upon the earth. Now, I believe we've heard from God this morning concerning Miles. He's just a little nobody, but if God chooses a little nobody, then he becomes an instrument. That's what I heard. I heard the voice of God this morning, did you? And we praise God for it, but at the same time, we, we, we want to recognize that the covenant community is just as important as the man. Gideon had a, had a calling, but he couldn't do anything until the Gideon band gathered around him. Abraham had a, a faith and a vision, but he couldn't do anything without the 318 of covenant-committed people born in his house. It was that that God used to slay the kings. Amen. Can you see a principle right through Scripture? I hope you can. So it's not 
vast numbers, but it's that covenant court. It was 120 in the upper room. It wasn't the tens of thousands who got blessed. It was 120 who followed Jesus unconditionally, which were the covenant community that brought blessing to the city of Jerusalem and changed, literally changed the history of their nation. There wouldn't have been a God suddenly without a, a covenant community. Amen? So it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And I will bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace unto it. The hands of Zerubbabel, verse 9, have laid the foundation of this temple, and his hand shall also finish it. Then will you know, then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And then there's the promise of the olive trees and abundant supplies of oil. Now, in between these two chapters comes chapter 3. Amen? And I want to add to what this morning, for the I'm going to focus on chapter 3, because in chapter 3 we're introduced to someone. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, and he was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. So what we're seeing here is we're seeing a transformed priesthood. Now notice that this priesthood carries the name, in fact he's the high priest, he carries the name Joshua, which of course is the Hebrew form of the name Jesus. So here is a high priest carrying the name Jesus and yet filthy. And I want to show you that God's calling his people to a holy priesthood. And that's a picture, an accurate picture of where much of the Church of America is. Carries the name Jesus, but it brings shame rather than glory to his name. And it cannot function, it cannot fulfill its purpose until the dirt is dealt with. And it's happening right now, beloved. But I want us to really focus on us this morning. We are called to a holy priesthood. We're called, you see, this is what's happened, is that Jesus has so identified with us, he so brought us into him, that there is now one priesthood, in fact there's one high priest, it's a many-membered high priest. Just as there is now one Christ, amen? When he walked the earth, Jesus was the anointed one, but then he went to death on a cross and received the promise of the Father that he might bring forth an anointed one who is now a many-membered anointed one. Amen? It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, it says, Just as the body is many, and has many members, and yet is one, so also is the Christ. So who is the Christ? The Christ is now the many-membered anointed one. It's the church. So Jesus took upon, you see, everything that Jesus entered into, he entered into it to bring us where he is. In the book of Hebrews in chapter 2, it runs through it. In verse 9, it says he tasted death. 
on behalf of every man. Why? To bring us into the power and benefit of that death. In verse 10, it says that he entered into glory in order to bring many sons to glory. So everything that Jesus goes into, he goes in as a pioneer, as a forerunner, for the purposes of bringing us to where he is. Hello. In verse 11, it says the one that sanctified and the ones that are sanctified are all of one origin. Literally, in the Greek, they're from the same womb. Isn't that incredible? That's why he's not ashamed to call you his brother. When you've been born again, you are of the very same womb that Jesus was born from. You are as much born from above as he was born from above. By that birth, he's brought you into that birth, and you are the sanctified ones as he is the sanctified one. Isn't that incredible? In verse 12, he's in the midst of the congregation, rejoicing and praising his Father. He, he gave birth to the church in order to bring us into the church. In verse 13, he says, I will put my trust in him. In other words, he is the man of faith in order to bring us into his faith. In verse 14, he took flesh and blood in order that he might destroy him that has the power of death, that is the devil. And then he did that to bring us into the same power of destroying all the works of the evil one. Hello, can you hear me going on? And you go on and on, and you see that, every, that, that he goes into... And he, he finally, at the end of chapter 2, we'll come to this moment, he becomes the great high priest, and we're going to see it's Melchizedek, in order to bring all of us into that same priesthood. Isn't that incredible? But as we look at this prospect of, of recovery and restoration, and, and of coming out of passive neutral gear, waiting for something to happen, to become God's militant army, he has to deal with the issue of the priesthood. See, chapter 4 of Zechariah will never be fulfilled until chapter 3 has been completed. We're not going to see the mighty outpourings of God. We're not going to see all those tremendous things that are referred to and for the rest of the book. It all hangs on, can he bring forth the priesthood? Amen? Can he remove the filthy robes and take off the disgusting headdress and clothe his priest properly so that it glorifies rather than brings disgrace to the name of Jesus? That's the question. And all my being, I say, oh, amen, Lord, do it. Amen? See, right now, at this very time, right now, angels are appearing to people in churches in the United States. And I'm talking not about these angelic appearances where afterwards you discover it was an angel. You see, angels have come unawares uh, quite frequently, and I'm sure there's quite a few people in this room who we've had experiences of meeting angels unawares. I'm talking about angels coming in unveiled glory so that the, the, the person who receives them can hardly bear the sight of them. The power and the energy of their coming is so incredible, the person feels they're almost going to die. Remember how when John fell before the Lord Jesus, when he came in the power of his glory, he, he felt, and when Daniel had angels visit him, the power, it was so strong, that he said, are you all right? Can you, can you take my presence? See, there's a great longing for God to come himself and through angelic beings in unveiled glory in order to rightly communicate with his church. And there were certain um, innocent, pure, simple people, I, and I don't say that negatively, I mean the kind of people who've got the right kind of godly, childlike simplicity, to whom angels are appearing right now in the United States and, and telling them what God's plan for this nation is. And I've got three tapes of these visitations and uh, I tell you, I'm totally convinced of their authenticity. But this, it's so interesting what the angels are saying. And the angel said to this 
person who's become the intermediary to communicate this. He said, remember that God is light. And if you want to walk with God, you have to walk in the light. You think of how John the Apostle, after... I mean, he's speaking in the year A.D. 95. He is the guy that's walked with God and walked with the Lord Jesus from beginning to end. And he's the guy that was allowed, among all the apostles, he was allowed to live until the mid-90s. All the other apostles were martyred in their relatively young years. But he was kept by God in order to be able to speak from that long-term perspective. He came to know God as a human being probably better than any man has ever been permitted to do. At the end of 70 years of seeing Jesus uh, teach and crucified and rise again, he had a unique, incredible perspective of the whole birth of the church and the beginning of the church age. And at the end of all that, his message is, God is light! It's not some great profound truth. He says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And he says that he that says he walks with God and walks in the darkness is a liar and does not the truth. That's pretty strong language. You see, we've become so familiar with darkness. I was talking with my, my daughter in England and she has had a recent uh, visit. Uh, the angels are beginning to appear in Britain too, but I don't want to go into all that. We were just talking about angelic visitation. And as we were talking, I said, it's interesting how all these angelic visitations, there isn't a single leader around the world that's ever had one of these visitations. It's, it's to what I call the simple, innocent, you know, sweet, pure-hearted people that, that the angels come, and very often to children. And there was my 10-year-old granddaughter listening to this conversation, and she, she's had some wonderful encounters with God. And I said to, to Rachel, my daughter, I said, I wonder why it is that God can't appear to us. This really bothers me. And this is what my little granddaughter Nicola said. She said, Granddad, she said, the problem is this. She says, not that you have done evil or that you live in evil, but you have seen so much evil, it's become so normal to you that it doesn't horrify you the way it horrifies God. And she basically, I mean, this is not her words, but she said, basically, you're just not pure enough. You see, if we sit and watch television and watch lots of violent films and lots of explicit scenes, even in the advertisements between the thing, that has an effect on us. It, it contaminates us so that we can no longer walk with God. You may not participate in the acts, you may never ever want to, but it has a, a dirtying effect nevertheless. And if we're going to be God's holy priesthood, we're going to have to clean up the way we walk in the light, beloved. Just in order to maintain my regular viewing of my favourite soap opera, I could miss God's purpose in my life. That's too big a price to pay, beloved. Can you hear what I'm saying? Because you're just not clean enough for God to use anymore. It speaks in Timothy about vessels for honour and vessels for dishonour. Amen? And it says it's our responsibility to decide which kind of vessel we want to be. See, if, you're, if you ladies, you're going to go into the kitchen and cook uh, lunch afterwards and, and there is two, two um, sauce, what do you call them in America? Saucepans, you know, two pans. I thought they used a different name here. And there is one of them, shining, gleaming, absolutely pure, pristine, and there's one with some burnt rice in the bottom. Now, which one would you choose? You'd pick up the clean vessel, wouldn't you? And that's what God will do. So there's a call 
to holiness. If you read on in, in Zechariah 3, let's go back to Zechariah 3. Okay, this is, then, this is verse 6, then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, admonished the high priesthood that carries the name Jesus. Can you hear me? It admonished this high priesthood and said to him, said to, and I want you to see this as the corporate man, as the corporate Melchizedek. We're going to see how this all fits in a moment. Then the angel said to, to Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts and I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. Here, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions sit before me for they are a wondrous sign. Behold, I am bringing my servant the branch. Now can you see here that he's being invited now to a role of authority and of rule and of government providing he fulfills the condition. Can you see that? Now I want to jump into the New Testament. I've got a lot to cover. Okay, so come into the New Testament and turn to the book of Hebrews. Now the book of Hebrews was written round about AD 68-69, just before the temple was destroyed. All the apostles, all the first apostles, apart from John, have been martyred, and almost certainly at this, in fact, we're not sure precisely, but it's possible, certainly the Apostle Paul was in prison, about to be executed. He may have just been executed. The two letters that he wrote to Timothy were just either side of a very brief period of release before he was finally executed. Because what had happened was a sudden and fierce persecution had come upon the church through the Emperor Nero, who suddenly became a madman and was everywhere, hoarding Christians to be thrown to the lions, to be burnt at the stake, and they crucified multitudes of them. Suddenly, a wave of terror, of counterattack, came across the church, and the church was reeling and thinking, how can this be? I thought God had called us to take the world. And so in the, in the, the disappointment of setback, they were about to turn back from their purpose. And the book of Hebrews is written to a people who are disappointed because the kingdom didn't come as quickly and as painlessly as they thought it should. Hello. And they were about to go into passivity. They were about to retreat. They were about to get off the political and the spiritual stage and retreat back into passivity in order to avoid the fury of the lashback. And this was written to say, no, don't do that. If you hold course now, you're going to see the breakthrough. Well, we know from history that they did hold course. The church did gloriously respond, and within another short period of time, the Roman Empire, the whole system collapsed, and there was a great breakthrough in which we all live in the good of. If those people hadn't held course, we wouldn't have had the history that we have. Amen? So the question is, are we prepared to be as much warriors in our day as they were in theirs? And when we see the advers adversary come against us, does it stir us to greater warfare, or are we cowards who get off the battle and say, all right, devil, you have Houston, you have Texas, we just want a little meeting room to meet in and have nice times with Jesus. Leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. Because the devil will make those terms and conditions of peace, because he doesn't like charismatic Christians, they terrify him. Now, it's in this context that the book of Hebrews is written. And the main subject 
of the book of Hebrews is this great Melchizedek priesthood. It goes right from end to end, and of course we could spend a glorious week just studying the book of Hebrews. I'm just going to give you a taste of it this morning. As you come to chapter 2, as I've already mentioned, it sets out before us all the things that Jesus entered into in order to bring us in there. I want to come right to the end of the chapter and come to verse 16. For indeed, Jesus does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. He doesn't take away the war, but he gives us power to win the war. Amen? Now that, that generation that escaped from Egypt, they could have possessed the promised land if only they'd had a heart for war. Instead of which, Moses preached them all about the promised land and they, they sang songs and danced and clapped and got all excited about the way they were going to possess the land. But in fact, they died in the wilderness, never entering to their possessions. Amen? And you could do just the same. Because you won't possess your possessions without a war, without winning a war. Now, he will give you aid, so there's no doubt that you'll win the battle. But have you got the heart to do it? That's the question. There's no way that you can go beyond being a happy, cappy, clappy, little charismatic, introverted group. You can never become the, the solution to America's problems, the answer to this community's needs, without being prepared to go to war and win a fight. And to such people, God is committed to give aid. Ooh, hallelujah. Okay, he doesn't give aid to the angels. They're there to serve you to get the job done. That's what it says in the book of Hebrews. Amen? But he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he was made to be like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. So one of the first issues that he deals with is the issue of sin. I want to just mention five characteristics of the Melchizedek priesthood, all in the book of Hebrews. And the first one is that he produces a priesthood that actually lives in victory over sin. Doesn't just talk about it. They're in it. And because the high priest knew how to live victoriously over sin, he knows how to bring you into it. Is that okay? All right, I've got to move very quickly and just touch on things. In verse 3, there's the great warning that you could die in the wilderness, but only because of unbelief. Amen? He says, take care, there is not in any of you an evil heart in turning away from the living God. And he's, now, the only thing that can stop you is unbelief, because you don't need any ability, you just need God. Does that make sense to you? Is that okay? So, say that. The only thing that can stop me is my unbelief. Say that to yourself. The only thing that can stop me is my unbelief. I can have all the scriptures say. It's not lack of ability, it's not the power of the devil, it's not the circumstances in the world, none of these things can stop you, it's only your unbelief. That's all that can stop you, but you could die in the wilderness, and if you do, it'll be unbelief that did it, it won't because, because your dad wasn't a good father. Stop blaming those things, 
There's power in Jesus to overcome whatever circumstances you come from. Won't be your economic condition or the America's economic condition. It won't be because certain politicians got into power. They're irrelevant. God's bigger than all that stuff. Amen? Then we come on to chapter 4. And I'm just going to jump to the end of chapter 4. And verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, so he's been through every layer of demonic uh, power, and when he rose from the... When he rose... When he, I mean, he began in the depths of hell. That's where his ascension began. You know that, don't you? He was down in the deepest depths of hell, and then when the day came for him to arise, the power by the power of his resurrection, he sort of shook himself, all hell trembled, all the gates fell off, and he just walked out. And all the demons said, Stop him! And every power and principality, and every, every strength of hell came to catch hold of him. We mustn't let him rise, but they couldn't stop him. He just ascended and he went through the heavens and at every level of demonic power, because in the lower heaven is there's, that's where the demonic strongholds are. He went straight through them. It says in Colossians chapter 2 that he, it, it literally says, he's, he, let's just turn to that. Keep your finger in Hebrews. Just let me get the word right. I, my mind, I can't quite remember the whole Bible. But I try hard. Come to chapter 2. And verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of the ordinances that were against us, he took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers. And, and literally in the Greek, it says he divested himself. It's like as if you can imagine someone who's got leeches sticking to them. And says, eh, you filthy things, get off. And everything that was trying to cling to him, everything that was trying to hold him, he just stripped it off and says, get off, Blech! every bit of you. And although all hell was on him when he died, there wasn't, wasn't a vestige of hell hanging to him when he arose from the dead. He went straight out of hell, straight through all the heavenlies, every principality power fell back, unable to hang on to him, and he arrived gloriously in that heavenly heavenlies, having stripped off everything, having destroyed everything, having beaten everything, having conquered everything, having won everything, having taken possession of everything, there was nothing left at all. Yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah. Now that's our high priest. He, he, he divested himself. He disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. You know, it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it said he destroyed him. Now the word for destroy, is the Greek word, katageo is the word, it does not mean annihilation, it means to take away, uh, to render powerless. If you can imagine some great electric motor driving a big machine by a belt connection, can you imagine that? And then you, you cut the belt. Now the motor goes on like but it's, it cannot turn the machine anymore because the belt's being cut. Now that's the, exactly the picture of the Greek word here. See, it isn't that the devil, you say, well the devil's not being destroyed, his power has. He's like a great revolving machine that can't drive anything anymore. Amen? He's been rendered powerless. He's been rendered inoperative. It's the same word that's used in 1 John 3, 8 when it says, For this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might render ineffective. He might make totally powerless. He might, he might make totally useless all the works of the evil one. So he doesn't destroy the devil. He destroys his effectiveness. 
Is that okay? Oh, I like that, don't you? Come back to Hebrews. Hebrews 4. And so at the end of Hebrews 4, we read there that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, so let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen? So he says, well, I've been through everything. I've faced and conquered and destroyed, in that sense of rendering operative, every, simple, every single demonic principality and power. Now, as you come into my priesthood, and literally become part of me, the great Melchizedek, then what I have entered into now becomes your possession. Does that make sense to you? Amen? Is that okay? Come on to Hebrews 7. We're having a quick study of Hebrews. Come on to Hebrews chapter 7. And verse uh, 24. But he, because he continues forever, let's go back to verse 23. Also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. That word uttermost means to the uttermost, uttermost lengths of time and to the uttermost lengths of distance. There isn't anything historically or in past, present or future that's not encompassed in his saviourhood. Is that okay? It's to the honest, so he reaches right back to what may be for you a very horrendous beginning. You may have been abused as a child. Your dad may have walked out on you. You may never even know who your dad was. You were, you were abused by a visiting uncle. There's all sorts of reasons why history can be very painful for you. And it did all sorts of damage to you. And you can go on right to the other end of time and from end to end, he's able to save to the uttermost. Isn't that fantastic? And to the uttermost limits of time and the uttermost limits of distance. It doesn't matter how big it is. It doesn't matter how far it stretches in time from beginning to end. There's a saviourhood in Christ where you can be as free from sin as he is. You can be as free from the power of this world as he is. Everything that the high priest entered into, he entered into it for you. To bring you there. Isn't that fantastic? Verse 26. Well, let's go back to 25. Therefore he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Did you know that you are on the prayer list of Jesus? Isn't that great? And every... Continually, he's, he's offering your name. Praying for you. I just think about that. He says, dear father, she's having a tough time now. Those kids are driving her crazy. And the husband's not helping the way he should. But he said, oh, father, I'm just praying for her. That she'll just come. Just let, let power come upon her to, to walk in victory. And, and, and he knows all about you. He knows your circumstances. Isn't he incredible? Then in verse, the next verse, verse 26, for such a high priest is fitting for us. He becomes us. He's holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, 
and has become higher than the heavens. You see, you need a high priest like that because that's what you've become in him. If you had a high priest that needed to go and offer sins for himself, he would not be good enough for you. <laughs> you got that? Let that drop into your heart. You have to have a high priest like that because that's where he brings us. Incredible, isn't it? So here is Joshua. Here is this priesthood, this high priesthood carrying the name of Jesus and yet filthy. And God says, I've got to change that priesthood before we can go into chapter 4. And then it can be by might and power. And mountains are going to move and we're going to, we're going to conquer and we're going to establish. We have to get the priesthood right. So first of all, it becomes a holy priesthood. Okay? The second thing is it becomes, it's an intimate priesthood. You see, according to the Levitical priesthood, the high priest, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, went into the holiest of all, after a very complicated procedure of sacrifice, and just for one day, on the Day of Atonement, he offered sacrifices before God for the sins of the people. In fact, they were so scared of that day that the tradition tells us that they used to tie a rope on the ankle of the high priest because if God didn't receive the sacrifices, he didn't come out alive. It was a dangerous thing to go into the holy presence of God unless there was a power in the blood to make you right before God. There had to be the power to totally and absolutely propitiate, to satisfy the wrath. So they would tie up, because if the high priest, they used to have bells around his body, and they could hear him walking around going, tingle, tingle, tingle. They knew he was still alive. If those bells stopped, no one was going in to go get him and see what happened to him. They'd just pull him out by the rope. <laughs> and when he came out alive, there was a great shout went up because it told God's people that their sins had been forgiven. See, that was the day when he made atonement for the nation. It wasn't personal sins, it was national sin that was atoned for on the Day of Atonement. And you know, there is power in the blood of Jesus, not only to forgive you for your sins, but to forgive America for murdering, I don't know how many million children, babies, in, in abortion. There's power in the blood to forgive America for the terrible things that, that various segments of our society did to each other. There's power in the blood to forgive all that, to wash it all away, and to wipe the thing clean, beloved. Amen? Can you, can you hear me? Now, in the Melchizedek priesthood, there's only one place for that priesthood, and that's to live permanently within the veil. Not just one day a year, but it was the whole life of the Melchizedek priesthood was within the veil. And you see, this is what God's doing in these new waves of blessing. He's teaching us how to live in his presence. He's dealing with the sin, he's dealing with the hurts, he's dealing with the fears, he's dealing with the sense of, of worthlessness, and he's bringing us to the place where we get comfortable in God's presence. You know, when the Spirit of God has visited certain churches in the United States, and I've been called up by pastors who were looking for God's blessing, and God came to their church but the result was devastating because a lot of the people were not ready for God. They just knew how to live in religion. And when God actually came to the meeting, in one particular church I'm thinking of, one third of the congregation were terrorized when God came. And they fled out of the church and they have never been back since. 
And this pastor called me and said, he said, Alan, I was praying and crying out for God and we had this wonderful day when I was expecting this visitation. God came all right, but he said, my church is devastated. And a third, third of the church ran away and have never been back since. Because they, had, they were familiar with a methodology of church life, but they were totally unfamiliar with the presence of God. And you and I, we've got to learn to be comfortable with God. Because you see, the, high, the Melchizedek high priesthood has to live permanently in the holy place. Not only does he deal with the sin, but he deals with the sense of inferiority and condemnation. You see, in the, the realm of the spirit, even the archangels cover themselves. With one pair of wings they fly. With one pair of wings they cover their face. With another pair of wings they cover their feet. And they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Even archangels have to cover themselves in before the awesome presence of Almighty God. And yet, in that same incredible context, the, the redeemed saint is told that he is to gaze upon God with an unveiled face. Has it dawned on you that the only being that's able to gaze upon God unveiled is the redeemed sinner because that's the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We're changed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, isn't that incredible? In the Song of Solomon, you know, that great, wonderful allegory of the bride of Christ and, of course, Christ himself, he says to his bride, come out from the rock and let me hear your voice. Come out from the rock and let me see your face. Because, you see, the power of the blood is so strong that you can live before God face to face. You can live in the holy place. Amen? And we have to come to that intimacy because friends have to know what their master's doing. Amen? Let's turn to Hebrews in chapter 10. Therefore, brethren... This is what it says, have boldness or have confidence to enter the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus. How do you enter? By the blood of Jesus. Have boldness to enter by the blood of Jesus. It said, now there's been many sacrifices. Look, come back to, to verse 11 of the same chapter. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But this man, this High priest, this Jesus, he has offered one sacrifice for sins forever, and then he cathedzoed, he sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies were made his footstool. So there's never any ever need to repeat the sacrifice. It was offered once. And it has the power to sanctify forever. Amen? Therefore, it says in verse 19, because of this, have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, you and I have got to learn how to live as a Melchizedek priest. Permanently in the holy place. Permanently in the holy of holies. Just letting the blood do its work. No new sacrifices needed. The one perfect sacrifice has been offered once for all. Isn't that incredible? 
You have an access to the Father that even Gabriel and Michael don't have. Isn't that staggering? Isn't that staggering? I mean, isn't that incredible? You can come face to face with God in a way that they cannot do. I, I find that so... It wasn't in the Bible. I mean, it would sound like blasphemy, wouldn't it? But it is in the Bible. And here we are called to have boldness. All right? So that's the second thing. We have to live in the presence. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, he said, I will not call you servants. I will call you friends. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will be your friend for a friend knows what his master's doing. So one of the results of intimacy is that you and God are so in tune with each other, you know exactly what he's doing and where he's going. And you can work with him in a way that's intimate. It talks about in one of the Psalms, I forget where, of God saying, I want to guide you with my eye, not with a bridle and bit. I don't want to sit on you and say, come on, whoa, go left or move right. He says, I want to guide you with my eye. If you can think of the intimacy that there is between a wonderful marriage, like my wife and I, I can, I hear says, just look at me with her eye. I know exactly what she means, you know. Or think of a very, very trusted servant who's served his master for years and the master just goes, and he immediately knows what to go and do. There's such communication between them. Can you hear me? And so he's calling us into such intimacy that he can just go like that and we know exactly what to do. Okay, come to the third thing. It is a warring priesthood. Now, I mentioned in the first session, we look here to him. Come to the beginning of chapter 7. Come to the beginning of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. You see, it's so in the heart of this high priesthood to destroy all the works of the evil one, that when Abraham got up by faith and went out to do what was in the heart of God, he, was, he said, I just got to go and bless that guy. So the first manifestation of Melchizedek was to bless a man who with a covenant community went up to destroy and render powerless all the power of the evil one who slaughtered the four kings and rescued his son or, or his nephew Lot from the bondage of one of those kings. Now you think about it, you've all got relatives who've been captured by this new way of thinking. You've got relatives who've been led off into erroneous forms of doctrine. Some of them might even be being affected by occultism and witchcraft and New Age and all that stuff. You've got people who've been perverted in their morals, who are living in a wrong order in their family. Others are pursuing finances and greed. And they're all like lots who've been held, have been taken captive by the four kings. And we need to rise up and say, I'm going to go do something about this. Not just ring around and say, God, isn't it awful? He says, no, you go, you go. See, see, Abraham rose up and said, come on, we're going to rescue them. And he, and he became active, not passively, wringing his hands. Amen? And rescued them. And we're going to see many of these people rescued. We're going to see our lots rescued. Our own relatives, our friends, our neighbours, people that we know, families we know, in this community, they're going to be rescued. And it's the warring dimension of the priesthood that's going to do it. Now come to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. This particular psalm, you may not know this, but it is true, is the most quoted 
Old Testament passage of Scripture in the New Testament. This is referred to more than any other passage of Scripture. Okay? The Lord said to my Lord, are you there? This is David. What was David? He was a man of war. And what did God say of David? I don't like his warring spirit. It's contrary to me. I wish he was a pacifist. All this getting up and fighting and establishing the kingdom and destroying my enemies, I don't like it. I mean, is that what he said? No, he said, here's a man after my own heart. Amen? It was David who, when Goliath was strutting up and down, saying, I defy the armies of God. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And, and they basically said, well, if no one else will have a go at him, I will. And God said, oh, I love that man's heart. It's after my heart. Amen? Man after my own heart. Through him, I was able to do all my will. David served God in his generation. Then he fell asleep. What a test. He was of the order of the Melchizedek priesthood. You see, David was never a priest after the order of Levi, but he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Is that okay? Because he wore a linen ephod. He danced as a priest before his God. He was a king and a priest. He was in all the New Testament theology long before it was ratified through the cross. A thousand years ahead of time, he just grabbed it all by faith. He raised up a tabernacle which was absolutely illegal. All it had was a holy, holiest of all. There weren't any curtains. There were no divisions. He just walked in and lived and danced and worshipped and sang face to face with the living God. He did things which were totally, utterly illegal. He should have dropped dead the moment he walked into that tent. But because he was in the new covenant, because he was after the order of Melchizedek, can you hear me? Can you hear me? So for 30 years, God gave us a prophetic window of what it's like to be a Melchizedek priesthood through his servant David. Does that make sense to you? Oh, hallelujah. And so we want worship. We want everything to be after the order of Melchizedek. We want a, a, a tabernacle, which is David's tabernacle, because that's all part of this priesthood, where you can spend your time in unveiled, glorious, face-to-face -face presence of the living God, worshipping him and meeting with him and, and just adoring him and hearing his strategy for the city and for the nation and receiving power. And it was from ta the tabernacle of David that a strong scepter went out to rule the nation. Amen. Once they raised up David's tabernacle, it wasn't long before his enemies were destroyed and before the kingdom was established and, and irresistibly enforced across the whole region. Can you hear me? Amen. So this priesthood is a warring priesthood. It doesn't just spend its time getting its sins cleansed, although it does do that. It doesn't just spend its time in intimacy. There's a, there's a warring purpose behind it all. Okay, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send can I just borrow an NIV for a moment? Would you mind? I just want to... Sorry to steal your Bible. Oh, you're in Zechariah. You're not even... <laughs> she's, she's, she's getting... I've caught you out. She's getting her own... I shouldn't have told on you. I'm sorry. I do the same thing. I, I get my best sermons when my wife is preaching. Psalm 110. Okay. Listen to it. The Lord will, extort, will extend your mighty scepter. 
the Lord will extend your rod of strength from Zion and you will rule in the midst of your enemies. Amen? Okay. Or in verse 3, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power in the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning. This is how it is in the NOVI. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. Every one of you will become like, a, like a, an inexhaustibly energetic young person. I think it's in a, how many days? About six days' time, I shall be 65. But I'm 25 inside. Amen? And I intend to stay that way. Amen? You'll receive. Can, can you hear what's being said here? Okay? The Lord has sworn, and he will not relent, he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings. In the, this is all being spiritual, okay? He will execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the place with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. Let's read it in the NIV. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. And therefore he shall lift up his head. Now in Zechariah 1, no one dares lift up the head. But when the Melchizedek priesthood comes, it's characterized by having his head lifted up. It knows it's triumphant, it knows it's victorious, it knows it's powerful, it knows it's got authority to rule, and also it's got the resources to crush every king that gets in the way. Every mountain shall be removed. You see, the mountains don't move out of Zechariah 4 until the priesthood is established in Zechariah 3. Can you hear me? And even while you're at war, there's a wonderful crystal brook running by the way. You see, these times of refreshing that we're enjoying, it's all part of the preparation for war. See, imagine two armies fighting in a hot, dusty plain and there's sweat running down and the, the heat of battle is all over them, but one of them has a stream of crystal water that they can stoop at, drink at, at any time and the other army doesn't have that facility. Have you got the picture? So when you feel it, we just take a few, few deep mouthfuls of the times of refreshing, of this wonderful crystal brook that's running beside you. You just drink deeply of Jesus and you go back to give the devil another hammering and he hasn't got any such resource. He's getting hotter and hotter and more and more weary and more and more tired and there's no refreshment for him. But any time you want, you can just be refreshed and come back again with renewed vigor. I tell you, who's going to win that battle? You see, that, that, that stream of refreshing is vital to keep the army in good condition. And when you have your intercession prayer meetings, you need to keep drinking at the brook and then going to war. Drink at the brook, then go to war. Drink at the brook and then go to war. And you will stay fresh. Can you hear me? You see, every reference to Melchizedek in the scripture portrays him as this warring, conquering, king-destroying, mighty one who knows how to continually refresh himself in the presence of the Lord. So these times of refreshing are not for us to retreat into introspection, but they are to keep us fresh and fiery in the battle. Is that okay? So we're being called to war, but it's a war of a certain kind. 
it's a high priestly war. And knowing how to be intimate with God, knowing how to be able to drink, that's what keeps you powerful in the battle. And of course, because you are holy, there's no chinks in your armour. Because you've got on the whole armour of God, because you are, first of all, got on the breastplate of righteousness, and you've got on the belt of truth, and you've got the helmet of salvation on, you see, because your mind's been renewed, you don't think synthetically anymore. You think like God thinks, in absolute thesis, antithesis ways of thinking. So you cannot be confused by the devil. You can't be disturbed by the devil. There's a clarity of thought. You think like God because your mind's been renewed. There's an impregnable righteousness upon you and there's an impregnable truth upon you. There's no place the enemy can find to attack you. He can't penetrate your armour any more than he could touch Jesus. Now Jesus was impregnable not because he was the Son of God but because he was impeccably righteous. Hear me. In his humanity, it was his sinlessness that kept him free from all the power of the devil. Don't go walking and think, oh, if we get into war, the devil will get us. He can't get people who are holy. The only ground of access is sin. If there's no sin, there's no access. He can no more touch you than he can touch Jesus. And I tell you, a well-armed private in the Lord's army is just as devastating as a well-armed general. But a general with holes in his armour is much more vulnerable to the devil than a private who hasn't got any holes. So don't get this rank thing out of place. We do need generals. We do need apostolic ministries to lead us into battle. But I tell you, if you put a gun in the spout of, of uh, a bullet in the spout of your gun and you shoot it and you hit a general on the other side, he'll die as much from your bullet as if a general fired the bullet. Can you hear what I'm saying? So don't get deceived. Well, I'm only a little Christian. I can't pull down strongholds. And if I'm a little Christian and I go against strongholds, the devil will destroy me. He can't touch you. Jesus said in Luke 10, 19, Behold, I give you power over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Amen? All right, let's bring it to a close then. Here's the fifth thing. It's not only a warring priesthood, but it's also a royal priesthood. It's a ruling priesthood. Come to Second Peter. We'll just pick it up there. Second Peter. I'm sorry, I want First Peter. No wonder I can't find it. First Peter. I beg your pardon. First Peter. Verse 15 says, but chapter 1, I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 1. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Amen? Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And this is a fisherman who probably knew how to swear and cuss. Well, you know he did because he cussed the day that Jesus was... They said, oh, you're one of his... Lovers. He knew how to cuss. I mean, you had to chew tobacco and spit it 30 yards. He was a bronze, you know, tough fisherman, probably tattooed all over. Now, get a picture. He's not sort of St. Peter the Holy One. He was a, he was a, he was a, a red-blooded, down-to-earth man whom God got hold of. He was a real Texan redneck. <laughs> Amen? That's, that's what Peter was like, so don't get any wrong ideas about him. But he was so transformed by the power of God and so called into holy priesthood that he can use this language. Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. And if you call on the one who judges without partiality, conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here with fear, knowing that you were redeemed not with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Come down to verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth 
through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Okay? Now come on to verse chapter 2. Verse 4. Come to him as a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. And you, as living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Amen? Come down to verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God. And come to chapter to Second Peter, chapter 1, and verse... 2 Peter, chapter 1, and verse 3, it says, His divine power has given to us everything necessary for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who, who, who has... This is what it literally says in the Greek. He has called us to his own glory and excellence. Isn't that... This is Peter saying these things. This is this tattooed, tobacco-chewing, cussing fisherman who has been so transformed by the power of God, that he can use this sort of language. Get the picture. That Melchizedek appeared to Abraham. Amen? So we're going to stop here, we're going to have a break, and we'll come straight back on this after, in the next session. Okay.